You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Porig Lenahan from NUI Galway. His paper was entitled The Wild Geese, 1690-1697, Fact or Fantasy. I'm talking about the wild geese, I suppose the opening quote sets up, our quest- sets up the question. They were very important to 19th century nationalists. The quote is from Davis, and a people to be capable of self-government have to show bravery and constancy, Conversely, people, cowards, don't deserve self-government. So it's part of that agenda. I was looking at the... I'm looking at the wild geese. By wild geese, I mean those Irish or the Irish brigade who fought for Louis XIV from about 1690 up to 1750. I looked at... I interrogated that legend or myth or story or construction. And I started out with the normal revisionist scepticism that, that we have, you don't really want to confirm. You want to find. And to my, rather to my, I found yes and no answers. I found in looking at the, the wars. Now, I'm looking at two wars in particular. I'm looking at the last two wars of the reign of Louis XIV. That is to say the war of the Grand Alliance, of, uh, uh, as far as it involved the Irish Brigade, from 1690 to 97, and the war of the Spanish Succession, 1701 to 1714. And to anticipate my conclusions, I found that the legend is, has no basis in reality for the first war and has a surprising basis in reality for the second. We, 20 minutes doesn't allow me to deal with the entirety of that, so I'm going to deal with the first part of the equation where I found, if you like, the legend of an elite, highly regarded, Shock Troop um, Irish Brigade has very little basis in reality. Um, And I look at that for the War of the Spanish Succession, sorry, for the War of the Grand Alliance, 1690-97, and we leave the rest of it hanging. Um, I just advert to that at the end. So so what are we looking at? Here is a a map I, I constructed to give us an idea of the Irish Brigade and where they fought, the scale of their, of their actions, I used uh, the admissions to the Envalides. They, they have been opened up for us by, I'm having a senior moment here, O'Hanlon, O'Hanlon, and it's brilliant work. And it, it's, it's a wonderful resource. And looking at those, I looked at the places that people reported, soldiers reported, having been wounded. And I used the, those that, those figures as a proxy for the scale and intensity of various sieges and battles in which they were involved. Bearing in mind, of course, most of the soldiers died died of disease, right? But that's neither here nor there. So it gives you an idea of the scale of the action. They're fighting on all of the fronts in Louis XIV's wars with a particular reference, particular uh, reference to the the Piedmont and Savoy, uh, for, for a number of reasons, but th- th- they're all over. Now, in looking at them, um, I'm looking at the, as I said, trying to interrogate this lesson, 
we, we, we can, we can take, take it away here. Are they an elite <coughs> brigade? Um, first of all, there was no brigade, right? There were, were 20,000, an estimate up to 20,000 Irish soldiers at the beginning of the 1690s, a lot less by the end of the 1690s, <laughs> and maybe four or 5,000 uh, wives, sweethearts, or camp followers, or call them what you will, as well. So there is, what is a brigade? A brigade, without getting too technical, is uh, two or three, comprises two or three regiments. Uh, typically, you're talking about two to 3,000 people, men. The Irish could have supported, there could have been any, a number of Irish brigades. There was no single Irish brigade. There were Irish regiments, which are scattered in various other brigades, sometimes predominantly Irish through happenstance, on all of those theatres that we looked at, the Rhineland, Central Germany, Flanders, Savoy, Piedmont, Catalonia, and uh, there's no pattern. So there is no Irish brigade, first up, in the, the war of the, the, the Grand Alliance. Um, they're not, there isn't, they're not a cohesive group with a certain esprit de corps. In fact, there is an important distinction between them. It's a, it, we look at the, what I call the ancien and ultras. The ancien are those who came to France before 1690, sorry, before 1691, before Limerick. The ultras, the others, are the ones who came. That's, that's what they're described as. There's no even term for them. As the bulk of those, of those exiles who came after the Treaty of Limerick. So they, they, those two are treated differently, as we'll see. We look at other indices, such as where did they stand in the line of battle? And battle, battle positions were very linear. That means something. Their pay, always an important indication of status. So, I mean, I'll get back. They're not a brigade. Are they elite? Well, how do you determine if a group are elite? Are they well regarded by their employers? You can, you can judge that from how well paid they are, how are they used, where they're placed, what tactics do they fight with. If you're looking at an elite body, you'd expect them to be shock troops, saved in reserve or kept in the front line um, and put, used at critical parts of the, 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 the crisis of a battle. Um, I look at perceptions of the Irish and the sauvage stereotype. I think I heard you talking about this years ago. And how are they regarded at home? And to follow on the point that Tom was making, we, we can often regard the wild geese and that whole world of the exiles as an extrusion of Catholic Ireland. Rather to my surprise, reportage in Gaelic poetry is scant and inaccurate about that war. And I was expecting it to be otherwise. So those are the, the, the themes I'll be hitting in the, next 15, in the next 15 minutes. Pay. There's no point in comparing Irish troops to French troops. So 20% of Louis' army, or thereabouts, are foreign troops. And if you compare like with like, compare apples with apples, and we can see the, the pay rates in Sauls and the, 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 the Deniers. Um, clearly, the Swiss are regarded, no great surprise there, as the elite troops. And I had difficulty, the circa um, 11 Sauls, as, the, as their daily pay, is... A calculation I had to make because the, the documentation tries to obfuscate the fact that the Swiss are getting paid so much. Um, but it's, it, it's there. Then in descending order, some of the Italians. Uh, Italian, I know using Italian and German is a, it's an anachronistic term, but it's just sh short, shorthand. 
Ital some of the Italian units are at seven, some of the Germans are at six, some more of the Italians are at six per day, the Ancien are at six per day, the Germans, some of the Germans and the Irish are on five and a half, five deniers, five souls, six deniers. The Walloons, for some reason, are on the French rate of pay. The Walloon are... The, but, but. So, the Irish, not to, not to labour the point, they rank pretty low in, ter uh, uh, in terms of periods. And what particularly galls the Irish is the distinction between this... And this. In other words, some of the Irish are paid more than others. And that persists, and it's a source of great resentment. Um, how, do they f how do they fight? The quote on top there is from the, the author of The Light, Light to the Blind. And he articulates a common perception that the Irish are particularly good at... They don't bother, bother with muskets and firepower and all this stuff. They like to get close. They like to use the sword. They like to charge. And they're particularly skilled at this. And this, I find, is, by and large, for the war of the Grand Alliance, a myth. Right? It's, um, he gives the example of Marseille, the Battle of Marseille in, 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 in northern Italy in 1693. And again, if you know from it, Front line, middle line, core de reserve, and the Irish units are in, or the Irish components units are in white. They're all over the place. There's no particular, there's no particular pattern to it. One of them happens to be in, 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 in the front line. Others, others are not. Um, what is the significance of the, the front line position? Basically, in an army, um, the position of honour is on the right of the front line. So the Irish, in terms of their positioning in the battle lines, are not particularly highly regarded. They don't feature, except occasionally, as in the case of Maxwell's dragoons, and dragoons, albeit dismounted, were more, were more highly regarded than infantry. Stop, I'm getting too technical. Move it on there before, before I start getting into it. Um, let's take a more typical example of how they fight. And we look at the... Near Winden or Landon, that's a real meat grinder, a butchery. It's it, without putting it, without getting into into the detail of it. You have an enormous, a large French army, eighty thousand, facing an Allied army under William of Orange, sixty thousand. William quite rightly knows that he hasn't a chance against Louis, who's or against Luxembourg, who's is superior in numbers, skill, expertise, everything. So he hunkers down behind trenches. So the, the, the Allies are behind this line of trenches um, with fortified villages, and they're letting the French get, come at them. And the French spend three quarters of the day, most of that day, at them. And where do the Irish feature in this? Well, the major attacks are on... The, and what I've done here is using, again, the admissions evidence from the, 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 the envelopes. And I've looked at the numbers of casualties in various regiments. And I can, I can kind of picture from that the relative casualties suffered by the various units. And again, to cut a long story short, the Irish suffer heavy casualties in that battle. How do they suffer it? They don't suffer it by... Uh, what happens is there are two gaps. There's a gap in, that, in those trenches covered by, covered by uh, wagons. So the cavalry eventually come through those gaps, but the poor infantry have to get the wagons out of the way, occupy the gap, 
and that's where apparently, and I say apparently because I'm inferring this from casual power, the contribution of the Irish is not mentioned by any source at all. They are completely invisible. And they fight, how do they fight? Again, using the evidence of the, the wounds suffered. Here I've come up with an outline of the soldier and um, the, the various, where the, the artillery shot, the big circle, small arms shot, small circle, what's happening here? What's happening here is, there, of all of the weapons, of all of the, there are no sword, pike, or, this is still transition from pike, there are no pike thrusts, no sword slashes, no saber slashes, they're not engaged in hand-to-hand contact. We, even from looking at where the, 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 the wounds are fought, what's happening is, they're on hay, they're standing like this, maybe somebody crouched in the second row, somebody kneeling in the third, and they're taking most of their punishment on the left-hand side of the body or their right leg. And um, what it's telling us is they're fighting not as um, swordsmen attacking, they're fighting in um, just a standoff, a firepower-based standoff. How am I doing for time? Okay. So, so really, the so that is more typical of the Irish of the Irish. What we're seeing is two things: a, they they lose heavily, and their contribution or their involvement doesn't really rate much mention in the the Gazette, which is the the other or other such organs of the French state. Um, So there's no great celebration of, of what they're about, and they fight as normal infantry and why do the Irish happen they just happen to be they, they, they happen to be as was in the wrong place at the wrong time These, the, this unit was the, the two, ba- two battalion Irish guards but again we're getting, we're getting into it too much detail just ne- ne- next, next one there poetry now I taught long and hard and this is an article I'm writing I taught long and hard about going there because um, you, you leave yourself when you go outside your comfort zone and start talking about Gaelic language poetry and eventually so what I did was I looked at the more accessible printed sources I looked at O'Bruder Darren McCarthy uh, Sean O'Gara took uh, um, um, McCourta so I took people Oriel, North Connacht Munster uh, two from Munster and to see well, what are they saying about the 1690s and about the and about the Irish, and what do I find? Very little, and that little is usually vague, general, and there are very few, very little by way of specifics about names of battle, names of places, names of towns. Um, it's quite general in, 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 in surprisingly so. Um, the most specific one was the only bit of where I looked at an RIA manuscript, and it's an elegy composed in 1697, and it celebrates the, or laments rather, the death in Spain of somebody called Captain Dougal, Dougal, the dexterous Captain Eamon of the sword. And that's, from a bit of research I was able to find out, that that was Captain Edmund um, MacDowell, or Dowell of County Roscommon, um, and he's... um, he was killed at the siege of Barcelona in 1697, along with, um, in one particular, 150 more, 100, over 100 of his of the Dillon Regiment. It's that's it. That's as specific as it gets. In Spain, 
There's no, I'd love to see, there's, there seems to be very little reportage back of, of what's happening. Um, Darren McCarthy's lament from Mount Cashel, he was um, Justin McCarthy, Viscount Mount Cashel. Um, it laments the fact that he never see him again, that he never see Sarsfield, who was killed at Landon, not with Irish, but with French troops. Uh, or John Barrett, who was an officer in the guards, who, like Sarsfield, was killed at. But that's it, he doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us where, Landon, near Wyndon, how they died. It's frustrating. I'm a military historian. I like these kind of details. And we're not, we're not getting them. Um, so I found the, the evidence of the poetry suggests a disassociation or a, a, a lack of interest or a lack of involvement. Looking at those same poets and other elegies, elegies they wrote about men who had died who had been serving um, in previous waves of exile such as in the 1650s. And there's a great, more, a, a great deal more concrete detail. Names of towns, names of campaigns, and so on. So it's, it's vague and, uh, and spotty there. Yeah. Next one, please. Um, yeah, O'Gara yeah. talks about the Stad Nuh the Heron. He talks about the, the, the nobles, Nahutra, Tom Morris, and Rank. It's an Heron, so the, the nobles did in, in France and Ireland, and pictures them skimming over the waves, I, is that where the, the idea of the wild geese originated? It's the earliest I've seen of it. That's a 1697 poem. You, you, you can take it from there. Uh, reportage. The French reportage is scant. And by way of illustrating one episode, Siege of Barcelona, you have Dylan's regiment is involved in that. They attack across 100, a bastion salient. They're attacking across 100 yards of fire-swept open ground. They take heavy casualties. Or 110, 115 dead. And all that the, the Gazette has to report about this is an amusing story. Um, more or less, if you want, I don't know if the French have the You know what we say, he's a gas man or she's a gas woman. And gas doesn't mean funny. It means, you know, not terribly trustworthy, interesting. You know what, I, that's the kind of, oh, they're, they're, they're gas, those, those, those Irish. And here we're looking at a case of an Irish deserter who's come out from Barcelona fighting the, the Irish and he recognises his officer and he kills his officer or he kills an officer but doesn't kill another and the French are describing the thing and it's, just, it's supposed to be a funny story. That's it. They're, they're either the French, and I've looked at the correspondence, the, 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 the archives in Vincennes. For more, by and large, the Irish are reported on as a problem. They have too many camp followers, they get drunk on St. Patrick's Day, they, um, they have, they're starving, they're dying of disease. They suffered a lot from disease before they acclimatised to um, where they're fighting, mostly in, in Mediterranean conditions. And they suffer badly from flux. Um, we need to go into what that is. But flux and fever, particularly flux. Anyway, so they come up as problem cases rather than as uh, celebrated there. Um, an exception would be Vauban. The celebrated Vauban, who has a soft spot for the Irish, and pleads with, now that the war is winding down, and you've got these people who are exiles, how are they going to ever get home? And remember, he's pleading with the king and with his war minister, Barbiza, keep them on, uh, give, them, give them a livelihood. They deserve pity, they have been driven from their country in account of their religion, and the result is 23 Irish battalions are cut to eight. So from an Irish point of view, that's catastrophic. Um, from the point of view of the Irish officers, it's catastrophic. Their, their vacancies 
there are far fewer vacancies. Most of the Irish officers have to. It's not a problem for the other ranks because, in fact, by now the other ranks have been sweated down to about a quarter of their original strength anyway. But certainly you've got understrength units, you've got officers who now have to revert to being other ranks um, in various guises. They have terms like reformés and, and so on, are cadets. But basically they're officers serving in the ranks, maybe getting an extra pay supplement, most often not, and hoping to be promoted. And... Um, so what happens? Um, well, I, I, I conclude by saying the next part of my story, which I won't be talking about today, has to do with the war of the Spanish succession. When everything I have said is turned on its head, or nearly everything, they're paid more, they're regarded more, they appear in the Gazette more, their bravoure extraordinaire, their extraordinary bravery is celebrated again. They are... Um, there's a different way of fighting, and they are fighting more like shock troops. They're doing more. And I try and explain that, and I link it to a particular episode, just the last, the last two, um, the War of Spanish Succession. Even visually, we can see their frontline troops, 1701. First line, first line, they're still not in the brigade, but they're, first, they're considered first line troops. Um, their perceptions... Are the, the change at Hoxstad one um, the Irish Brigade I, I give an example there of a Bavarian officer who has no particular interest in sorry he's an Italian officer commanding a Bavarian regiment and he's beside the Irish, the Irish troops and he says these guys are incredible he has no particular interest in the Irish one or the other and he knows it and it's linked to a battle called Cremona are the affair or the business of Cremona in 1702, January 1702. You're looking at a picture of a marshal of France. I'm sure it's not as it happened. The marshal of France has been captured by and is making his obeisance to Eugene of Savoy, Prince Eugene of Savoy, commander of the Allied or Imperialist armies. This was an incredibly... Basically, Eugene and his troops occupied Cremona, took it by surprise, sneaked in troops... Uh, through a, a culvert and into the gate, occupied the town, all unbeknownst. It was a severe embarrassment or mortification for the French. The governor managed to turn the story round into one of a positive rather than negative. And he did so using a carryman. Major O'Mahony, Daniel O'Mahony, who was uh, one of his aides. And O'Mahony, with some basis in fact, spins a story of extraordinary bravery in which the Irish feature uh, prominently. And that story, if there's one episode that marks a turning point, it's Cremona. So with that, folks, I stop. <laughs>